Recording in progress. Welcome to Lectionary Call-In for Tuesday, August 22nd of 2023, where laypersons and pastors gather at 6.30 a.m. each Tuesday to discuss the Gospel Lectionary for the coming Sunday. And this Sunday is August 27th. We're working to be faithful to Lectionary Year A. Here's how it works. We prepare independently in advance of the discussion after receiving some formative questions from the week's leader. And then in this podcast, we share and question and challenge each other. And here are the folks joining us for today's discussion. Bill Hall in St. Petersburg, Florida. Sarah Mickelson in Tampa. I'm Don Upton. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. And our leader for today, we're thankful for this, Sarah <laughs> Mickelson. Because <laughs> okay, this is some challenging discussions today. But Sarah, so glad you got the point. Looking forward to hearing your reading and the questions you brought for us. Hello. Morning, everybody. I'm glad to be here, and I hope I'm glad you're here too. Um, reading from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. That ends our reading. Now, if you're like me, the words Caesarea Philippi don't bring up any particular location or geography in the path that Jesus walked. So I had to do some research um, to come up with an understanding of where in the world Caesarea Philippi was. So I'm going to give you the backdrop. Caesarea Philippi is likely one of the most northern points of travel for Jesus and sits just below the Syrian border. It is both a border town and a crossroads location at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is thought to be one of the two possible locations where the transfiguration took place. This peak is nicknamed the Eyes of the Nation. It is one of three mountain summits which form the highest peaks in Israel. Caesarea Philippi was known for its temple to Pan, um, and the cave that's located there was considered the gate to the underworld. The, The cave itself was called the Gate of Hell during Jesus' time. And a collection of freshwater springs, an ancient collection of freshwater springs, flows from the mouth of the cave. And the springs compose 
what's considered to be the headwater, part of the headwater system of the River Jordan. What an interesting backdrop. Um, you know, it's kind of like when Jesus says in verse 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I build my church. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. It's just right there. Um, so uh, it's an interesting geographical reference that I would not have picked up if I hadn't done my research about where this location was. And it's here that Jesus asks, but who do you say that I am? And my question is, why do you think Jesus picked this location and asked this question here? What do you think, Bill? First of all, Sarah, thank you for that background. Uh, that that really is helpful, and it stirs me to to read and basically replicate what you said. Uh, first of all, a little scholarly note. This story is told in all of the synoptic gospels here in Matthew, uh, in Mark 8, and Luke 9. And interestingly, Matthew and Mark both note the location, but Luke does not. At least I could not find that. So uh, Mark, as we know, was likely the earliest gospel. So I, I think your question is, is point on. It's not accidental that this geographical location is noted. I think, building on the background you gave, perhaps this is a hint intended by Jesus and recorded by Mark and Matthew of, of making clear what is later going to happen in Matthew 28. Remember, last week, we dealt in part with the conversation between Jesus and the Canaanite woman and Jesus saying, you could understand him to say, wait a minute, I've come to serve the Jewish people, not the Gentile. Now here he is standing at the border of between Israel and a Gentile area. And later in Matthew 28, at, at the very end of this gospel, the famous Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Clearly, it's you're to go everywhere, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So, Sarah, some scholars think not only is Jesus geographically at a border, Matthew is at a border. Theologically, he's going to move more clearly to an inclusive understanding of God's love. And I'll say more later, that journey of expanding the inclusiveness is a part of the Acts narrative. Um, and it seems to me, being human, that Jesus' disciples were conscious of what you've highlighted for us. They knew where they were. <laughs> they understood the social, religious, political, geographical boundaries. Uh, and I would think they, they were aware of it and perhaps even had some sense of caution of being near, uh, quote, foreign territory. And as you've noted, uh, Sarah, this was a polytheistic region. I mean, you Satan and Pan and this worship of what some would call pagan gods. And so 
this event occurred occurred in a geographical location that reflected the tensions that did and would exist between the various understandings of God and the divine. Look at today. The religion has a powerful influence and in how we understand God and how inclusive or exclusive God is was and is very alive is an issue today. Thank you for the question. Welcome. What do you think? Why this location? I'll build, well, I, I think because it's one of many locations. So just a little turn on the, I agree. I'm with you guys on where you're going, but uh, I think there's, to use Bill's words, the boundaries. I think there's an understanding of the boundaries or a growing understanding of the boundaries because there are lots of places with boundaries. And it doesn't matter where you go. And so I want, I, want, I want to build on that. I think there are tensions everywhere. This is the perfect place to tell the story about boundaries and tensions because I think this could be told over. There's, there's the unwritten parts, which is everywhere else he's going that week. So it, it's just the best, I think, the best illustration of that. So your question is, why does he ask? And I've got a few foundations I use to get to my answer. The first is my foundation that Christ is eternal, timeless, but is also the God of time and place. So, you know, here's a boundary. Here's a boundary situation. What's there tomorrow? Meditate, think, engage, ask questions. Uh, and then I'm remembering uh, the person we honor with this podcast, Bill Wallace, who's not with us anymore, but he led generations of lectionary, gospel lectionary discussions at Palmasia Presbyterian Church in Tampa, Florida. And Bill, when he landed on this, said that this is not about a person or a faith kind of leading to the rest of the passage, but a confession. Not about, I mean, in terms of the rock. This is about a confession. And he also says this is the fulcrum in this gospel, the ministries in transition from the ministry and the healing and that to facing Jerusalem and the passion. This is a turning point. This is the end, the crescendo of that turning point. Mark Davis in his, was actually this week, 8-20-23 commentary, he notes on the translation, which he, by the way, he calls his blog Peter Fesses Up, which I thought was pretty cute. Uh, he suggests this is a part of an ongoing questioning. His, his interpretation of the, of the Greek is this is ongoing. This is not necessarily a crescendo. Uh, and this is going on and on. There is a mix of conversation, and, uh, and that, in, that involves an unveiling of what has been veiled kind of paraphrase what he was saying. So if this has been going on and on, then Christ is in a conversation, an ever-present conversation in many ways. This is the perfect setting for it, for us to understand all those boundaries, but those boundaries are everywhere. What are people saying? What do you say? What do people say? What do you say? What do you see? What do I see? So I see Jesus working in a few dimensions. The first is conducting a situation assessment for his advanced team. Lot to learn. He's performing a diagnostic with his followers. Where are you, all of you? And then Jesus is playing Socrates, asking me questions, and Jesus is probing the hearts of everyone. But if you go with what Mark Davis is saying, this is, this is a piece of an, of an ever-evolving, ever-going conversation. I, I'm thinking about people in my life. I knew people from the 19th century, you know, and I'll be with you presently. Minute, I'll be with you presently. I said, "What a sweet bit of poetry! Always present, always present." 
this is a present conversation always, always, which I think leads to some of your questions about the church, too. So the disciples are in many roles, ever-present roles. Are you present? Do you remember? Are you connecting? Are you connecting to the eternal, too? The eternal's in this. Isn't that exciting? And some of the answers are echoes of what we're reading, hundreds of years of answers. And even in that day, in that present time, they're talking about Elijah. So, you know, it's, it's like water. It's flowing through. So my, it's kind of summarized my answer is the truth can be spoken, the rock, the confession. It comes from God, uh, but it is best accessed as we move about various communities every day in search in our hearts every day in particular times and particular places. What is Jesus doing now? What is Jesus doing presently now? What's happening now? So that's, you know, I'm thankful for Mark Davis's blog this week that helped set me into this. That's what I have, Sarah. Thank you, Don. Um, you know, this is a very Roman setting. This started out a very religious, organ- a religious moment or religious geographic area dedicated to Pan. And so this is known for a specific thing long before Jesus arrived on this location. It's very Roman. And I think it's interesting that Jesus talks a little bit about who do, you, who do they say the Son of Man is, almost as if Jesus is asking the question about the Messiah in a nebulous way and juxtaposing it against who he really is. So I spent some time thinking about the messianic expectation that the Messiah would come and overthrow the Roman domination and free the people from the oppression that Rome was bringing. And that's a very different Messiah than the Messiah that we know now on this side of that particular moment, um, a sacrificial Messiah, one that's ordained by God to become the sacrifice of the world. So I'm I'm curious that that backdrop of a very Roman, very very ancient spot sets this conversation in a nice way where Jesus can say to his disciples, who am I not and who am I really? And have them elaborate on that for him or at least share their understanding or their, their understanding of who they think Jesus is. So I think that's an important um, thought process for us as well, because oftentimes, you know, I mean, wouldn't it be simpler if God solved a lot of problems for us? I mean, it, I would say um, I have a friend whose granddaughter, four, is fighting a particular type of cancer right now, and just watching her little body go through this, that's one of the things I'd say, Lord, fix that right now, please. Um, so this understanding of who we see what we expect of God versus who God really is, I think is an important moment, important thing to consider. And this particular location gives us a very unique opportunity, I think. Um, I think that we're, we're looking at what do actions say versus what words say. And I think that's really a tricky wicket 
um, for all of us because we are all incongruent during some part of what we're doing each day. Um, Jesus continually interacts with those who were on the margins, considered outcasts by the powerful of his time. And at this moment in American culture, Christianity is quite political. And I think Jesus is putting us on the borders on purpose and asking us, if you will, to, to take the long sight and climb the mountain and look and be the eyes of the nation to see who's hurting, not necessarily to see who's in and who's out, if that makes sense. So my second question um, is continuing on this path. At this time, because Christianity is frequently political in today's American culture, and it's often a weapon, is the church silent on this question today? And if so, why? And as Christ followers, how do we answer the question? And the question being, who do you say that Jesus is? So, Don, what do you think? Um, my answer is going to be based on that this is a recurring challenge over thousands of years. And I'm saying that not to get off the hook in terms of the sharpness of my answer, but the ever-present Jesus, what do you say today? What are people saying today? What are you saying tomorrow has all this in it? You know, what do you say? What is your answer today? And that this is, this is a daily challenge. And I'm saying that because I decided I would answer sharply just for conversation's sake. And so if you'd asked this me uh, a few decades ago, my answer would have been different. And it would have been something about the church evading the answer. But it's, I have a different answer today. So I'm intentionally sharpening this uh, for discussion. And by the way, it was so helpful to me to actually get my pen out and write it down uh, to help me think through it. So for those of you look, that use the questions of this podcast for your discussion groups, this is one I'm just saying from my heart, it sure helped me to put pen to paper. So uh, here it goes. I, I think the church is not silent on this today. I think it is screaming. It's answers, plural, uh, an answer. Answers. It is screaming its answers, and maybe always has. Uh, and I think the diversity of answers are as diverse, not more, than what happens in this particular place, in this particular time, in this particular gospel. The diversity of response, the diversity of hopes, the diversity of human interpretation, and Jesus' travels. And I think walking with Jesus, what they see and they hear is probably no different than what we see and hear today, even in the places we call our own, our own churches, our own places of worship. So I'm, I'm opting for, we are screening answers. I think the temptation is to declare what Jesus wants without stating who Jesus is. And I, I, I'm going to lay it on myself. I bet I feel the same way. Uh, and I, I know there's another saying I hear a lot, which is like, who's asking? Who asked you? Why are you, you're answering a question I didn't even answer, ask you. Why are you, who, what, who raised this question with you? Uh, and so the confession of Peter is the rock, which we're talking about, but P, Peter's not the rock, it's the confession. If Peter's the rock, then he's in the same mess that we are. Peter gets it wrong thereafter. But Peter's 
he states what is the rock, but he, he gets it wrong. He gets it wrong. And so I'm going to be hard on Peter here, which I know there's debates about we shouldn't be so hard on Peter, Peter but I think it reveals for me what's in my heart. Peter gets it wrong because Peter knows a better way. Peter regulates. Peter seeks compliance. Peter, he seeks compliance even for Jesus. No, Lord, not that way. Not to your death, not to trial. No, I have a better way. He seeks compliance. He seeks control. He seeks combat. He seeks retreat. He's fickle, confident, afraid, bold, headstrong, reckless, evasive. Just like me. And I call myself a member of the church. Just like me. Just like those who call the church on earth their home. Human beings who are not the rock that have to depend on the confession. It's a starting place. This is the only gospel, by the way, that holds up the church in this way. The only one. Uh, and so Jesus uh, says, I think in this passage, ever-present, always every day asking the questions. Identity is, he's saying, identity is a weapon. Propaganda is out there. Identity is malleable. Uh, it can be compromised. It can be weaponized. But I have, a, I have an answer for you. It's only from God. There's a rock. So beware. Be careful. Because they are you and you are they. And I'm going to keep asking you every day. Every day. So Peter gets it right and he gets it wrong. And I'll just wrap up by saying when I think about the church and you know, everything in this that's about my temptation, I'm, you know, I'm picking on Peter to turn it on myself, is uh, I can't tell you how often I, I, I walk into a room where somebody's working and, and obviously we'll start talking. And you know this, this thing that we do now as Americans, we go, it's a pause and somebody goes, but yeah. And then, but yeah, or yeah, no. And then they go into something, which is like, what it does is it says, some, you've asked me a question. I'm going to pretend that you asked me a question so I can declare something to you. Who's asking? Why are you? Who asked you to tell me something? And I'm turning it on myself. Who's asking? So, you know, wh is, where's the question in the first place? So I believe there are these declarations out there, but who asked the question in the first place? That's what I've got. Now, this one was really discomforting to me um, to think about this um, because there are people who are weaponizing the faith I practice. I took it very personal, and I have to remember to step backwards a little bit. And I was the glad person to participate in the women's conference at Montreat last weekend and I had the privilege of hearing Margaret Amer speak, um, the Reverend Dr. Margaret Amer. She is the New Testament Studies professor um, and academic dean at Austin Theological Seminary. And what a woman on fire. What a great story she unfolded for us, the story of Hagar and um, Abram and Sarai, or Sarah. Um, and it was really a lovely broke the story wide open for me in a way I hadn't heard it before. And I, she reminded me that the church has often taken 
a strong political stance on things, only later to discover that it was an error. Whether they stood on the side of slavery or whether they stood on the side of um, how they responded to the cries for help out of, out of Europe during World War II, the, the stories are numerous where we have, across time, the early church made choices about how to handle strong political conversations and chose poorly. So I, I thought about this question from that perspective and, and would like to say it is just as often as not likely that I'm going to choose poorly. So 50% of the time I'm probably going to take the wrong stance and be corrected or adjusted or um, retuned to the words of Jesus um, in a way like Paul, you know, who got knocked off a horse and struck blind and then had to come back to rehabilitation and suddenly became an advocate for Jesus where he had been a, pers- a prosecutor for those who um, had believed. So with that being said, here are some points of confidence I can break into. God will do what God wants to do, and I will be the glad witness of it. Be it right or wrong in my mind, <laughs> in my small little brain, um, in my smooth little brain, to quote my daughter who would say, smooth brain, bumpy brain, bumpy brain people are smart and smooth brain people are not so smart. So um, in my smooth little brain way. I also think about the difficulty to ascertain the right or wrong. And our reluctance or our caution about stepping out strongly and how often that has caused people to get stoned, like Stephen, or has caused people to find themselves um, in, in what I would consider collaboration with people who wanted to sit at the front of the bus instead of the back of the bus um, and, and walk across bridges and create new worlds where Everyone has a seat at the table. So I think about courage and what it takes to be the Corey Ten Booms, to be the Martin Luther King, to be the people that persist. And sometimes persisting is not loud, at least not as loud as what we would hear in political circles, because there seems to be a lot of noise without a lot of foundation or maybe no rock, so to speak. So I, I'm, I'm of two minds on this particular answer. I think the church often sits silent because they're not confident they have the right answer. I think the church steps out because their courage outweighs their anxiety about being right or wrong. I think that we, 50% of the time, will get it wrong, and 50% of the time will get it right. So... Um, I think the best we can do is sit next to somebody who's alone, who looks different from me, who might speak a different language, who maybe hasn't bathed in the last 24 hours, and offer shoes and bring socks and a glass of water. And everybody should have a seat at the table. And that might be on a one-to-one level. It might be a mini-to-one. I'm not sure. But I think that that's what we're called to do. Bill, what do you think? Sarah, uh, 
in your question, one sentence painfully grabs me. Quote, at this moment in American culture, Christianity is frequently a political weapon. I wish I could argue with you, but obviously I can't. That is sadly and painfully true. Now, it helps me to remember that at least in English, the word politics, political, comes from the Greek word polis, which means city, village, town. And the word in Greek means managing the village, city, town, nation. Okay? In that sense, Sarah, everything we do is political. We, we, we act in ways that empower others to manage us. We act in ways that we exclude or include people individually and corporately. So in the final analysis, the gospel is political. It addresses the very issues of managing. Is it for the greater good or only for the privileged? Now, Jesus, as we know, began with the question, who do you, who do people say that I am? And they're, Answers illustrate what's going on today. There are many different understandings of who Jesus is. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Then he says, who do you say that I am? I like to emphasize the corporate nature of faith, but also it is individual. Although in the original Greek, you is plural (laughs) from the South. Who do y'all say (laughs) that I am? Uh, But Peter answered individually. Um, In Matthew and Mark and Luke, Peter is the one to respond, you are the Messiah. Uh, In Matthew, the son of the living God, Mark, you are the Messiah, Luke, the Messiah of God. And then Jesus, and I won't park here, this is a whole other discussion. The moment Peter gives the right answer, Jesus says, Flesh and blood did not reveal this. You didn't come to this on your own, Peter, my Father in heaven. Even the capacity to believe is a gift from God. Even the capacity to perceive that Jesus is the living Son of God is is a gift. Uh, Now, Don, you're on deck next week with the story (laughs) that immediately follows that powerfully illustrates almost the moment Peter says the right answer, he gives the wrong response. (laughs) And we'll deal with that next week uh, when Jesus uh, predicts his suffering and dying. I I can identify with that. I think each of us, and and, and my colleagues have said this, I, I am also Peter. I affirm the lordship of Jesus Christ, and I act think in ways that are not congruent with that. That's my prayer, greater congruence, and therefore the hopefully the value of this podcast, worship, uh, all the spiritual disciplines that we engage in keep inviting us to seek congruence, but we will never fully get there. And in the further story in Acts, we see Peter growing in his own understanding. The vision of a sheep coming down and being told to eat all the forbidden foods and then meeting a, a Gentile. And in Acts 15, Peter and Paul and others get the official body to agree to drop the requirement 
if you come to faith in Christ, you still have to, males, abide by the required circumcision. This struggle to understand how broad God's love is continued in Scripture, and it continues today. And um, I will finish by saying that there are many, many answers today by those who claim to be followers of Christ, answers to who Jesus Christ is. Some here heard Christ lead them to try to overthrow American democracy. Uh, We hear people who claim to be Christians promoting Christian nationalism, like we're a Christian nation and we must dominate and control. And, And I distort also. So we are very much a work in progress. Um, And sometimes it feels like we take two steps forward and three backwards uh, as we have throughout history. Thank you, Sarah. Well, let's ask the question, Don. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, as Sarah just had to step away for a minute and you can join us when she uh, gets back in. Uh, I've got uh, Sarah's final question is what does binding and loosening look like? Sarah, I've asked your question. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I had a a young dog here that was looking to go out. That would Um, be loosening. (laughs) (laughs) So this is this is a hard question for this particular passage, and I'm going to put it out there. I'm asking it because it's hard. Um, so what does binding and loosening look like? And where might we catch a glimpse of the power Jesus promised this church? Where in our world do you see gestures of freedom and liberation? And who do you stand with, and to what do we bind ourselves? Because I think this is all a part of that story. Um, I'll go first because you guys told me you wanted me to. Um, I think that this phrase, binding and loosening, hints to what we cling to as truth, or what we let go of that we don't yet understand. It could also hint toward, because it's written in the future present tense, Mark Davis reminds us that this is coming. This is actually happening now. It's not the past. It's not, um, it's, it's what will be, if you will, the language he uses. And he translates it this way. I will give you the keys I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of the heavens, and whatever you may bind on earth will be what has been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose may loose on earth will be what has been loosed in heaven. So it's this the understanding that what we do here is connected to what happens in heaven, and what happens in heaven is connected to what we do here. Um if we consider loosening the Spirit of God 
it could move anywhere. It could move everywhere. If we don't confine it to Jerusalem, if we don't confine it to just a particular mountain, if the Spirit of God can move freely, that's different than if we try to constrain it. So there's that hint that we um, can try to wrestle and, and constrain the Spirit of God, and yet it will move where it wants to. Um, I think there's also that sense of what do you cling to when the world seems to be shaking apart? Where do you, where do you find comfort when what you're really experiencing is a lot of turbulence? You know, what, what's your seatbelt if you're on that plane and there's lots of turbulence? What's holding you into a, a place of safety? So I think that's part of what this question is, is hinting toward. Um, I think that it's important that we stay consistent with our words and our actions. And by that I mean I think that's a bit of being truthful, is when our words and our actions are in, are in agreement. And that is really continually a challenging thing for me. I don't know if it's a challenging thing for anybody else, but um, I think it's important to use words that are authentic and to use words that reflect my thoughts and my actions and not lead people into um, illusionary thinking. Uh, so I think there's something about this binding and loosening that the actions we take here on earth impact heaven. And and it, it almost, <laughs> I will kind of give this hint, maybe like the two-year-old that finally discovered the cornstarch that my mom kept underneath the cabinet, and it's everywhere. And in which case, it might not be a good thing that I have shaken all the cornstarch out and it's all over the floor because it's my nature to make a mess and heaven has to come in and clean it up. But maybe I have the wisdom to say, let's move the cornstarch in a safer spot and put it up higher. Um, and that might be the wisdom of heaven influencing what happens here on earth. It may be that simple, and it might be that difficult. What do you think, Bill? Uh, as you noted uh, in the pre-recording, <laughs> Don and I indicated how difficult this is. Nevertheless, it's in Scripture. Now, if we think the challenge is here, where Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and in a non-specific way, apparently generalized way, Jesus says, "Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven; whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Jesus ups the ante a few chapters later in 18, where he's talking about conflict among believers, and that go one on one, and then take somebody with you, and then specifically applies verbatim this empowerment to forgiving people. It can, one can read it in chapter 18 that I'm in charge of whether or not you are forgiven. Because if I forgive you, it's loosed in heaven. If I bind you on earth, it's bound in heaven. That's my problem with this statement. I, and I've, I've never have found a really comfortable place because it, it sounds like 
I'm in control. I don't believe that. I believe God is the one who forgives. But I'm, I can understand how this has been. You talk about weaponizing faith. People have over the centuries and even in today's world, I as the pastor or we as elders in certain denominations can allow or disallow you to take communion. We can say the Lord's table is not for you. That's a particularly sore point for me. Um, And ultimately, Sarah, I don't know what to do with this. I don't want that power. I can understand, let's say you said something that offended me. I can bind you. I could, in effect, say, Sarah, you're outside my circle of friends. Okay, I have. I understand that, that on earth I can keep somebody out or let them in, forgive them or not forgive them. But the other part, uh, I don't know what to do with it, Sarah. And I am concerned about how that gets weaponized. Maybe that's the point, that it is a weapon and that we use it with that regard or with that understanding and the darts we throw at each other in the form of judgment or um, I'm thinking about those things cut the relationship we have with God too. Absolutely. The the gotcha in this particular passage. Don, what do you think? Well, I hope my answer doesn't come off as evasive because that would be the whole theme of what I'm talking about. But I I I think I I I focused on binding and loosening, excluding the behavioral or the authenticity part that you're talking about, Sarah. Because that's really I think what it's about. Uh I work with awful lot of people and the one thing they all have in common is they want to be unbound. And authentic. And it's not like it's completely in my hands, but I sure have a responsibility and there's a discipline there. Uh, I talked to hundreds of people, leaders. That's what they want. They want an authentic place to ask questions, to reveal their fears, to talk about what they care about. And if everyone says that, what a pickle we're in. I know I would say the same thing. So I just, and I'm, you know, I'm really, it may sound like I'm evading, like this is a very soft answer to it, but I'm learning that the basic behavior of hospitality and understanding there's something authentic, I'm not the regulator of authenticity here. Neither is the church. That there has to be ways to do that. And, this book, Matthew, is especially helpful just last week. You know, we have the pinch of life walking in the room, and a woman saying, heal hey, my daughter, and Jesus calls her a dog. I mean, this, if, if that, that life's going to walk in the door, and we're not going to regulate that, even though sometimes I really don't want to look at it. No matter where we're, what posture we're in, there are things that we just, I'd rather not, and I'd rather... You know, does the church actually have a sanction or a, a regulatory role in making sure life doesn't happen? And and I'm confronting that just because I 
I mean, I have the I have the blessing of meeting new people every day. And, you know, the one thing we all seem to have in common, and I'm saying it for myself too, is I don't feel safe asking questions. And here's the gospel of questions. Presently. I'll be with you presently. By the way, I have a question for you. What do people say? What do you think? And I've grown up in a place where, uh, and I think it's true for the thousands of years, based on what Jesus is laying out, or God, the, the uh, author of Matthew says, that there's a great deal of fear in the flow of questions. Uh, did, is there anything in this where they go, they say, what, is, what do people say about me? And it's like, well, we're, we're all terrified now. They think you're John the Baptist. They must shut up. Now, there have been times in the gospel, the gospel say, let's rain down fire upon these people. There's the church. Ugh. Yikes. But I think there's a simplicity here about the eagerness I see in my fellow humans to find a place to talk and ask questions. And I think we're terrified of questions. And I'm terrified of asking questions. But when that breaks open, I ask everybody to reflect in your lives where you've entered into some kind of dialogue like that, how wonderful it is. And I would say, hey, I don't live in a world where the gospel is present or not. I, I don't live in a world where I go, okay, this is a gospel discussion. I think this passage says, we're asking questions about this. Gospel, it's gospel, gospel everywhere. And I, I'm not in control of that. As long as my heart's open and I have a spirit of hospitality, and thank, thank God people do for me. Oh, my goodness. The times in my life where people were just open to let me talk, I really appreciate it. So who's bound here? Uh, you know, Mark Davis is really getting the spotlight today, isn't he? He talks about it's like having something wrapped, bandaged, or a foot wrapped, un unwrapped. Who's bound here? And it seems to me, uh, uh, Christian, <laughs> remove thy bindings. It's not about other things. I think it's, for, for me, it's uh, it's easy to get bound up in avoiding the, the pinch of life and avoiding the conversation, becoming fearful of somebody asking questions, questions in ways that may seem inappropriate. And here comes that woman inappropriately walking in the room saying, heal my daughter, throw me the scraps of the, throw me the scraps of Christ. That will do just fine. Thank you. That's what I've got, Sarah. I'm reminded that Lazarus was bound. That Jesus says, unbind him. Um, yeah, I think that there's such a word of caution for all of us here because words can be weaponized and they can be destructive. And, and we bear a responsibility to each other to remember that. Um, and, you know, either way, that's what I'm thinking. So what do we choose to bind ourselves to and what do we choose to give less loosening to? I guess that's the right question. And there is such eagerness. Yeah. Right? This is kind of dark. You know, it's like there's a real eagerness. There's a real urgency all around. I have that eagerness, too, if I'm talking, if I'm allowed to ask questions. If I'm not sanctioned, even by a church, to be able to ask these questions. And there's an enthusiasm and an eagerness to enter into these things. Those are happy places. I agree. Well, Sarah, thanks for the great questions. And, and, you know, we put these questions together for our listeners because many of you are leading small groups and moderating discussions. And we, uh, you know, look, honor your comments and, and your utilization of these. We'd like to hear from you as we go. And the Palmer Presbyterian Church 
makes this podcast possible. They're at 3501 West San Jose. That's in Tampa, Florida. For more information, you can go to palmacia.org. That's P-A-L-M-A-C-E-I-A.org. We always commend that site to you for great sermons, discussions, discussions of lectionary, disagreements, uh, uh, prayers. Hey, I'll add to that. Questions. Lots of questions. Searching. Fun. Eager and eagerness, underlying eagerness in that congregation. Yay. Uh, great music, opportunity to take communion, communion. So check that out. And you're always welcome. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>